gift to have uh, musicians and, and, and leaders leading us and shepherding us through the gift of song. I remember uh, uh, there was a guy that my brother and sister-in-law hung out with back in the day. And I remember we were over at their house one night. We had just gotten married. And I'm a music junkie. And uh, I remember having a conversation with this guy. And we were talking, my brother and I were talking about music. And this guy's like, yeah, I don't listen to music. I just listen to talk radio all the time. And I remember just having this like look at him like, what? Like, what? And if that's you, I'm, I'm, I mean, I ain't trying to poke fun. It was just like weird to me, you know. But music is a gift. It uh, oftentimes communicates something much deeper than mere words can sometimes. Like when Melody hits that violin, that, that communicates something. You know, if I told Daniel, I said in the first service, if there was a dobro up there, man. Just if you don't know what a dobro is, go... Google Jerry Douglas and listen to him play the dobro. And you're like, oh, my soul is doing something right now. Stuff happens when a dobro's pr- plucked. Uh, we're way off base really early here. So um, <laughs> my name's Josh Reed. Um, and I'm grateful to be here with you to open up the word. I'm, I'm a member here. I'm not on staff here. And that's important for you to know because we don't believe there are any professional Christians at North Wake. So if you're visiting... Yeah, we just believe that God has given some to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and so that each of us can use our gifts to serve one another and build each other up in love and good deeds and to leverage that for the good of our communities. And that's the kind of community I think the Holy Spirit's trying to build here. Um, not trying, he is. The trying is on our part a lot of times or lack thereof. But that's what it is. There's no professional Christians and so the gifts you have, leverage them for the good of one another and for the good of your communities. And that's, the, that's how this thing works. That's, that's, in, that's intentional by design. Um, I have a question for you. We're going to go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 5, but let me start like this. What is home? Where's home to you? When you hear the word home, what's immediately the thing you think of? I mean, Dorothy said there's no place like it, right? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. What is home? Some of you may think, oh, it's this house that I live in. But is that home? For some of you, you'd be like, well, it's Wake Forest. But is that home? Some of you are like, like me, Buford, Georgia. But is that home? Some of you may be another country. And is that home, though? What is home? And where is it? There's no place like home. What do you mean, Dorothy? What if I asked you this question? What does home mean to you? That's a little different question. What does home mean to you? How would you answer that? How would you describe to someone what home means to you? Real Simple Magazine did a, did a survey of people all across America, and these were some of the responses. Lexi Williams from Winnemucca, Nevada, Nevada, however you say that, says, home is being around people who can drive you absolutely crazy one moment and make you feel like a million dollars the next. It's knowing that no matter how hard times get, someone's there for you home. Shannon Cuthrell from Cary, North Carolina says this, home means catching fireflies out on the front lawn with my brother. Those were the best times of my life. Cue up Brian Adams, right? Those were the best days of my life. (laughs) Courtney Golden of Arlington, Virginia says it's a place that evokes a sigh of relief as I walk in the door. Now, these are adults, and a sixth grader from Canada submitted a poem to Habitat for Humanities contest uh, for what does home mean to you? And this was her response. She was runner-up, by the way. I didn't find the champion because this one was good enough. Sixth grader, footsteps of children in every corner, golden memories dense in the air, laughter clothed in morning light, echoes of friends on every stair, handprints of companions marked in doorways, the perfume of comrades lingering in halls, Voices of kids playing outside, mementos of adventures hanging on walls. Stories of youth hidden deep inside, shining sunlight revealing all that hides. Warm smells of rich cooking, cozy couches and rugs, soft music playing, kisses and hugs. Built with love, filled with love, nurtured with love, and raised with love. And like every good poet does, they quote an existential philosopher. She quotes Rooney the Pooh and says, home is the comfiest place to be. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I wasn't writing that kind of poetry when I was in sixth grade. I don't even think I knew what poetry was. (laughs) Home is the comfiest place 
to be. And if you, you picked up on it, and maybe even as you were trying to articulate and form thoughts in your own mind and heart, it probably included some sense of where you felt most loved or a sense of belonging or acceptance, where there was both responsibility and purpose and that you felt like you were a part of it, an integral part of it. And there was peace and security. And one of the most disorienting things in the human soul is when that sense of peace, that sense of shalom is disrupted. And for some it comes early in life, for some it comes constant and continual. And it does something inside of us where something ain't right. That's how we said it in Buford, ain't right. Something ain't right. It could be sickness, it could be relational, it could be heinous sins done to you, it could be a sense of guilt from your own participation in it. But it disrupts and it disorients the soul. A lot of times people use the terminology of exile to describe it. Exiled from a geographical region, exiled from a country for whatever reason, or it could be exile in your own home. As some of you young kids might know, we call this time out. You're in exile. Home and exile. And, and, the, and the way people typically respond in the flesh to this sense of exile, to this disorientation, is typically one of three ways. We either like get defensive and we try to fight to preserve that sense and we'll just fight and argue and do whatever it takes to just keep this sense of peace that I get to define. Or we just deny that there's any kind of issue going on. We stick our head in the sand like an ostrich and it's like, no, everything's fine. It's all good. No, it's all good. Except it really ain't. Or we fall into despair of hopelessness. Now, if you've picked up on the last five months as we've gone through 1 Peter, what Peter's been doing is instructing us on how to live when home don't feel like home. When that sense of disorientation and disruption has settled in on how to live in exile. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, listen, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles. So he's He's highlighting this reality that these people are living in exile, even though they're in their homes. They go home every night. They're in their hometown, perhaps, but they're exiles, Peter says. He's calling them exiles. That's really important. And so let's read 1 Peter 5, uh, the last three verses, and let's, uh, let's put a bow on this letter here that's been so wonderful and worth it. It says, by Silvanus, or some of your translations may say Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Mark and Silas in the same paragraph? Well, that's interesting. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's a good way to end the letter. It's actually a pretty typical way to end the letter of the era. But there's so much more going on in this paragraph. If you're like me, how do you preach a theology of bye? <laughs> Tell mama now says, see ya. You know, peace, I'm out of here. Like, how do you preach that? Well, let's dig in. And I ask the Lord for help today because the hope is, is that we're going to explore the context and the content and that we would leave today with confidence and hope and a real sense of peace, of shalom, a taste of home, even when we ain't home. So let's pray and ask the Lord for help. So Lord, even now, even now, well up in us the deep sense of longing that's inside everyone. You've put eternity in our hearts. And guard us from falling victim to trying to uh, realize all that that's coming with our hands in the here and now. Certainly we're to live into these realities. But guard us to keep our eyes focused on the certain hope as we await our Savior because our citizenship is in heaven. 
Lord, our, our temptations are, are rife today, even now, to be distracted, to perhaps even go back to spaces that are really dark in our lives and just stay there without hearing the hope. And so would you just waken us, awaken us, awaken us, awaken us, awaken us to hear your voice and to see Christ so that we can be transformed more into his image. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So Peter is, is, is doing us a great service to show us how to read the Bible with this letter. He's taken all the Old Testament stories and he's applying them to these Gentile Christians in the Roman Empire in the first century AD. And that's a great way for us to understand how to read the Bible. You read the scriptures, you look at the stories, you look at the exhortations, and you say, how does this apply to us in this context right now? Either it's a living word or it's not. And Peter has taken the fact that it is, and he's applying it to these people at this time, and the Holy Spirit has seen fit to bear fruit, to continue to bear fruit to the readers of the letter every time we open it up. And so what's the storyline of home and exile in scriptures that he's taken and applying? Well, the, if, you, if you think about it, the entire Bible is a storyline of home and exile. When God speaks, he creates the world and, and everybody is home. The world is at home. Everybody's in right relationship with God. They're in right relationship with one another. They're in right relationship with the creation and they're in right relationship with themselves. And there's a deep sense of home that everyone has experienced. Their identity is set, nothing is out of balance, everyone belongs, everyone is peaceful, everyone is secure, everybody's giving because God's invited us into a life of self-giving love. That's what makes God different than every other concept of God in the world. All the concepts of God in the world are a, a capricious God who takes, who's solitary in and of himself, so he even has to create to be a lover but not the Christian God, not the true God. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So by his nature, he is in his nature a being of self-giving love, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Spirit carrying that love back and forth. He's a community of self-giving love and he speaks, creates, and invites all of creation into that life. Can you imagine an existence where everybody gives and nobody takes? That's home. And of course, our first parents said, thank you, God, we'll take all this stuff, but we don't want you. And that sense of home is disrupted. And instead, it becomes a home or an existence of taking. And blame shifting, we see our first parents saying, oh, you know what, God, it's her fault. This woman you gave me, it's your fault and it's her fault. And she's like, oh, it's the devil's fault. He made me do it. See this world of blame shifting and if you feel like maybe you fought with your siblings and you're like, well, they started it. That's how it happens in my home. It's only the kids that do that, right? They're good modelers, uh, good imitators. So this home, this sense of home is disrupted and the result is exile. Our first parents are booted out of that existence because God can't, God doesn't allow that kind of sinfulness to exist in his presence. It's a disruption of the shalom and peace that he's created. And the story of the Bible is, this, is one of exile and pursuit, of, of longing for home and yet not really being there. It culminates in this first 11 chapters. If, if you're an expert of anything in the Bible, I would encourage you to be an expert in the first 11 chapters because it's only gonna make sense of the rest of the story. It culminates in this, the people building this tower of Babylon, this city, this civilization uh, that is basically a, becomes a representation for the rest of Scripture that nations and institutions that try to create a sense of home apart from God, and it doesn't work, to try to fix what's wrong, to try to rewed heaven and earth apart from the one who spoke it all into existence, and it doesn't work. And it's out of that exile, God calls a man named Abram and says, Abraham, leave your home and go to a land that I'm going to give you. And it's there, it's there we're going to begin to create a sense of home in this world so that all the rest of the nations can look into it and they can know who I am and what I'm doing in this world. And, and it will speak to that eternal longing in each of their hearts to be home. And when you trace the storyline, what happens they get there, they get to the land, Israel gets to the land, and what happens? They begin to make Babylon in the land. 
And the irony of the Old Testament, it ends with Israel has become Babylon. It was supposed to be the anti-Babylon, but it had become Babylon. And so 586 B.C., Israel's carried off into exile by who? Babylon. <laughs> and they find themselves in exile, separated again from the land, from home, and that sense of disorientation. And if you want to read just the existential angst by all that, read Lamentations. That's a street-level view of pain, of what it's like when the promises of God and your experience don't line up. Oh, if we could recapture the power of lament in the church today. And yet, and yet, Daniel teaches us that Babylon becomes the Medes and the Medes become the Persians and the Persians become the Greeks and the Greeks become the Romans. The new Babylon is Rome and that's the Babylon that Jesus of Nazareth is born into. And Jesus is the first person who lives with a deep sense of home that's ever existed. Jesus is the one person who isn't bound up in this strange uh, fighting and denial and despairing and, and defending. He's the one person who lives with a true sense of home. Interestingly enough, he's homeless the last three years of his life. That's interesting. Where is home? What does home mean to you? And he begins to teach and he begins to live in such a way that just disrupts everybody's thought process because we're all born into exile. This stuff just forms us by nature. We're born into it. Our existence consists of it. Jesus starts teaching and he teaches about a, a father. We, we, we call it the prodigal son, but it's really about a father calling his children home. And you got a son who's far off and who's just blown it who's just destroyed his life and he's shunned his father in all kind of shame. The father should be angry and what does Jesus depict? He shows a father longing for his son to come home. And we see another son who's like, don't give him any like benefits. Don't give him any like, why are you extending your love to him? He's wasted. I've been here all the time. You ain't throwing a party for me. And the father's looking at him like, you've always been here. Come home. It's a father longing for his sons to come home. Jesus was messing with people's minds about and their hearts about what home really is. Matter of fact, he tells the disciples, like, I'm going to a place and I want to prepare it. It's home. And I want you to be with because that where I am, you may also be. And they're like, Jesus, where are you going? Like around the corner? Down around the corner. You know, like... <laughs> They're like us, you know, they're like, he's blowing their minds and they're like, man, you, you going around the corner? Jesus steps into this world and he takes on the consequences of exile. He takes on the consequences of what it means to build Babylon in our homes and in our nation and in our lives. He takes it on the cross, the full wrath of God deserving for all of us who make Babylon with our hands. He takes it on, rises from the dead three days later, and what he begins to do is unravel that disorientation one strand at a time and starts to piece back together for all who trust him that deep sense of belonging and home that's in every one of our hearts. This is why he said, it's better that I go away. God, the God who spoke the world into existence was standing there before them and he says, it's better I go away. Why? Because the intent all along was that all the families of the earth would feel this deep sense of home and to participate in this project that God has done called creation, of living in right relationship with him, with one another, with creation. And he just begins doop, dropping them in the hearts with new hearts. The Holy Spirit comes and fills and begins to reorient those who trust Christ to this deep sense of home vertically so that we can begin to expand that sense of home horizontally. It's a story of home and exile, of Babylon and Zion. What else is going on when these people receive this letter? Well, 
Babylon was Rome now, and there was a guy named Nero who had just taken over. If you know anything about Nero, he's a little crazy. Took over at 16, incredibly insecure. And things get crazy in empires when insecure leaders are leading. And it, you know, when he was 26 years old, he was so insecure and so like suspicious, he killed his mom and his wife because he didn't trust them. Like, you crazy. And a matter of fact, there was a fire that took place in 64 AD that wiped out about 75% of the entire city of Rome. And like everybody pretty much knows it was Nero because he was the one that benefited most from it. He has this huge mansion, this huge castle that he, he takes up residence in. But guess what he does? That's some Christians' fault. A, a, a strange minority is often an easy target. When people ain't like you and have different customs, it's easy to target them and point your finger at them. It's their fault. For all this angst in my soul, it's their fault. Babylon. And so this letter gets in these people's hands in the midst of this around the same time. It might have been right before the fire or right after. So can you imagine what it would be like to be them in this empire with all this going on? Nero was literally impaling Christians on these sticks, putting them in the ground, pouring oil over them and lighting them on fire. That's a little different than the solar-powered lamps on our sidewalks. He was covering them with feathers, making them food for animals and feeding them to the animals, the Christians. And so these people are living in this empire, a little distant from where all that was really taking place. And what's Peter do? Hey, she who's at Babylon, why doesn't he say Rome? He says Babylon, because this is how Babylon's always existed. Remember your scriptures? Remember the story? We're good, we're okay. She who's at Babylon's okay. Take a deep breath, because this is our story. This is our story. And so that's the context, and I hope that's helpful. And I know we just took, like, 20 minutes to just go through that. But sometimes we can pick up these letters and we'll extract a verse and be like, what's this mean? But it's helpful to take the context into order because what Peter's doing is he's saying, no, apply it to the fullness of your life right now. And in America, one of our greatest dangers is is we'll apply it to my life and not our life or our life. And Peter's saying, no, let's apply this to the fullest of what it is because he's trying to move all of us to action, to hope, and to not despair and to not put up our dukes and defend all this sense of ugh or to stick our head in the sand like an ostrich. In fact, he says there's a better way. In the, he shows us in this letter four tensions of what it means to live in exile. This was, by the way, Pontius, Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia. This is where these churches are that he's writing to. Silas is taking this letter throughout these house churches. And they came to faith either through Peter's first proclamation in, after, uh, in Acts chapter 2 or through this church planting movement that Paul and Silas went on in their second journey in Acts 15 and 16. That's who he's writing to. And he's awakening in us. He's reminding them of that life as an exile is one of tension. And he shows us four tensions in this letter, I think. The first one is one of loyalty and subversion. And he says, she was at Babylon. Why does he say Babylon? Well, again, that's a, that's a category biblically of institutions, of nations who, who try to exalt themselves up against God's good rule, who, who, who over-exalt their own story, their own narrative, their own rules, and if you don't abide by it, we're gonna crush you. This is the way, this is the way of the nations that has always existed. And so he says, what does life in Babylon look like? Well, he shows you. He says in 1 Peter 2, he says, look, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And matter of fact, fear God and honor the emperor. He says, be a good citizen. Pay your taxes. Be a great citizen. Serve the well-being of, of the institution you live in. If this is the government, you like, be a good citizen until you can't. Because there's a higher law, a higher order at work here. And he says, look, they're going to be surprised when you don't give over to everything they do. They're going to be surprised. And as a matter of fact, you're going to feel the effects of that. Wait, 
Why aren't you just doing this like all of us? Well, because there's something greater at work in my life. And I'll be a great, like, serve and be a great citizen until you can't. Because there's something greater at work here than the law of the land. Now, a lot of times, hopefully, those things line up, but they don't always. And for them, civil religion often meant making sacrifices to the idols of the land, the various gods in, in the Roman culture, or making sacrifices to the emperor. And when you didn't do that, these people literally believed that this was what protected the Roman Empire and protected their land. And when you don't do that, you're seen as, a, as an enemy. You're not, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you fearing our emperor that way? Well, I do fear the emperor, but I worship somebody else. I worship the one true Lord. What does that look like in our culture? See, one of the dangers is, is our Babylon has the veneer of Christianity on it. And it's really difficult sometimes to discern what's civil religion and what's true Christianity. How do you know you're following the real thing? It's going to be one of tension for the rest of your life. One of loyalty to Babylon in one sense and one of subversion. And you can be a jerk about it and not be effective or you can love your enemies. So, and that's the most subversive way because what do people expect when they, when they put up their dukes and ready to fight you? They expect you to fight back because that's the way of Babylon, right? Jesus says, serve your enemies. And when you do so, it's like heaping up hot coals, of, uh, or hot coals on their head. That's a weird phrase. Pulling that from the Old Testament, pulling it from Proverbs. And what's that mean? It means basically in one of those ancient cultures, it said when somebody would fight with you and they, they were shamed by it, like they were called out and they were, uh, they were brought to justice, they would have to wear, carry hot coals on their head as, as, an, as, an, as an emblem of their shame. Jesus says when you love them back, when you love your enemies back, it's like heaping up hot coals on them. Because what's the role of shame? It's meant to bring about a repentance. It's meant to bring about a change of heart. It don't always do that, but that's the role that it's meant to. He says, when you love your enemies back, that might very well be the thing that melts their heart right there. It's the way of Babylon, or it's subverting that. And so what's that like in our culture? I I don't know. You'll have to work that out in in, in real time, but it could be like, what are you going to do with you sports happens on Sunday morning? Maybe it's like, do I, do I go wholesale in on a, on a political party? Have I actually stepped back and considered what it might look like to not just be a party affiliate? I know some of you getting boiled up right now. Here come the dukes, right, defending. But the Christian identity is one of tension. If you're really comfortable in these things, be afraid of that. Loyalty and subversion. Don't try to resolve the tension. And so that's the first tension, is one of loyalty and subversion. Second one is one of being set apart and sent. And we see it right here, set apart and sent, when he says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. The true grace, which implies that there's a false grace. That what Christ has done in himself and on the cross and in the resurrection that there's a false grace that the way that you can respond to that, truly or falsely. There's a true grace and perhaps a false grace. But look at what the identity that he talks about in this letter. He says, he who called you is holy, who's set apart, you also be holy in all your conduct. You shall be holy for I am holy. So in your exile, I've set you apart. I have rescued you to myself and set you apart. Why? Why? Because you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into the marvelous light. See, Babylon is darkness. Living amongst Babylon, living in exile is darkness. And what God does is he speaks into the darkness and rescues a people to himself, brings them to the light, and says, now go proclaim my excellencies so that others can leave the darkness into the light. And you do that in word, you do it in works, and you very well might do it with wonders. Because when the gospel comes in the gospels, it comes in word, works, and wonders. There's a fullness to the gospel that testifies to the, the fact that there's a king and a kingdom that's here. But it's not yet fully here. 
set apart, and sent. And the false grace, if, you, if we respond to the gospel falsely, it's, it will either acquiesce to one or the other. Well, we're only set apart, and so we'll try to hide from culture, and we'll try to keep all the bad stuff from happening from me and my own, and I'm just going to hang out over here and just hang on. It's a hanging on faith. I'm just going to hang on, Lord. Or we come over here and we just give ourselves and give ourselves and give ourselves until we ain't got nothing left to give, and then we keep giving ourselves and keep giving ourselves, and we wear ourselves out because we have nothing filling us back up to give. And it's one that goes all the way over to the giving and the mission or one that goes all the way over to the, to the set-apartness. And the identity that happens when we respond to the grace of God in Christ is that we're set apart and sent. It's given in tandem with one another. And you get this. Like at your job, when you signed on that dotted line, two things happen simultaneously. You receive benefits and responsibilities. You receive benefits, you get a salary, maybe you get some insurance, maybe you get a little 401k package. I don't know, maybe you didn't. Maybe it's some uh, uh, lesser version of what I just said, but you get some form of benefit. But you also simultaneously get responsibilities. Your job tasks are are laid out before you. Here's Here's the expectations of your character. These things were given simultaneously, benefits and responsibilities. It's the same as a priest. When, when a priest, a holy priesthood, what are priests meant to do? They're meant to be mediators between God and man. They go between God and man. They go between man and God. And God says, the whole storyline of scripture says, I'm calling you out of exile into my presence so that you can mediate my presence to everyone in exile. It's a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of servants. Here's the responsibilities, here's the expectations, and look at all the benefits, they're yours. And you don't have to perform for them, they are yours. You're elected, you're adopted, you're chosen, you're rescued, you're ransomed, you're reconciled, you're redeemed, you get get eternal life, and you get access to me. Benefits, and you also get the privilege of mediating my presence to others responsibilities set apart and sent and somehow along the way those became optional but it's not optional in scripture it's never been optional in scripture you got 168 hours in a week and since all of us sleep eight hours a night that basically I mean we all sleep eight hours a night right does anybody actually sleep eight hours a night Maybe this is like the most holy thing we can do tonight is try to get eight hours of sleep. Right? Amen. Amen. That's right. <laughs> but just imagine if we did, right? Just imagine if we did. That would give us 112 waking hours. 112. And just, case, just say you work 60 hours a week. That would give us 52 discretionary hours. Now you're like, I ain't, my hours ain't discretionary. I got this to do and this to do. Those are choices. Those are choices. School and, you know, youth events and all these various things. Those are choices. I'm not saying they're not important. They're just choices. Discretionary hours. What would it look like to lay out those hours of discretionary time and say, what would it take to be in balance for set-apartness and sentness? To take a couple of hours a week that I just know I'm digging in the prayer closet and nobody else is coming in. And if it happens, it's, it happens. But, but I'm intentionally giving in to this sense of deep set-apartness in prayer. We meet here on Wednesdays corporately, 12 to 1, every Wednesday to pray. Pray. I see Sonia in the back. We pray. And that's it for an hour. And then we go back to work or whatever we do. 12 to 1. And we pray for renewal in our churches, revival in our area, and awakening across eastern North Carolina. And we're not, we're not really doing a lot of teaching. We're just praying. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's doing all the teaching. It's just an hour we're trying to give to say, God, make us, make us holy. You set us apart. Why? So what would another hour or two a week be to intentionally be a priest in your neighborhood? To intentionally be a priest not like with like the robe and stuff. I'm not talking about that. 
Don't, don't be that kind of priest. Don't, don't weird your neighbors out by walking around with like this robe and stuff. I mean, you do you, I guess, but. Mediating God's presence to your neighbors and then going in between your neighbors and God, interceding on their behalf. What would one or two hours a week look like? Could we do it? And then how would that shape the rest of this time? Holding that identity that God graciously gives us in Christ in balance. This is the kind of identity that happens when we respond to the true grace of God. Remember what the world we were created for is a world of self-giving love? Has there ever been greater love than this, than he who lays down his life for his friends? And when you experience and receive that kind of self-giving love, what's it meant to do? It's meant to awaken something in our hearts that says, man, I want to do that for others. I want to give my life away in response to this because there ain't no way you can earn that. The best way to respond is to replicate it. That's why Paul says we're filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What are we filling up in the afflictions? It's not his efficacy Big fancy word for saying it was sufficient for all who would trust him. You're not filling up anything. There's nothing lacking in the sacrifice. It was sufficient. What we're filling up is the demonstration of the sufferings. Because there's people in the world who haven't seen that kind of sacrificial love. When he calls us to himself, he's setting us apart for this. Set apart and sent. The third is peace supposed to be in chaos my apologies peace in chaos how do you experience peace in chaos Jason and I celebrated 17 years yesterday amen yeah I know right Uh, praise God we have six kids at home uh, roughly 15 to 5 so there are some days where there's a lot going on let me just assume that I'm sure you're like yeah I assume that there's a lot going on some days um, and some days, if, like a win is if everybody eats and everybody has most of their clothes on. Like, that's a win. <laughs> yes, survived a day. <laughs> uh, one particular trying time in our life, though, was May of 13. We had five kids, eight and under. We had an 11-year-old dog that was blind and would often go out and use the bathroom, step in it, and then come back home. You know? And we had a crawling around toddler in a small home and 1,100 square foot in Wake Forest with seven people and a blind dog and it was just intense let's just call it what it is also we were in the midst of leaving here planning a church moving to Raleigh and Jason picks up pneumonia in the same month there's a couple of things going on that month and I just remember reflecting on that time as we got past it and just thinking about man Jason just exhibited this incredible peace and, and and oftentimes even joy in the midst of that I'm like an emotional roller coaster, if you haven't already noticed that. <laughs> and Jaislyn just exhibits this incredible peace. And um, not perfectly, she'll tell you by no means perfectly, but there was this inner peace that allowed faithfulness and not despair and not fighting and not like sticking the head in the sand and just being paralyzed, but this kind of patient engagement. And she'll tell you two things really motivated that, just kind of like, what's the next thing I can do? You know, sometimes when I have a bazillion things on the plate, I can get paralyzed. I don't know what to do. She's like, just what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? But she'll tell you 2 Corinthians 12, 9 was, was really the motivating force behind having peace in the midst of chaos. And it's this. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And it's, the inadmission, it's, the, it's in the admission of the weakness where we experience the power. My power is made perfect in your weakness. The danger is I ain't weak. I got all this under control. I got all this chaos under control. Look at me. That's foolish. The power comes in the admission of the inability to manage the chaos. That's where the peace comes in the ability to begin to see clearly and experience peace in the chaos. Evelyn Underhill, who was a mentor to C.S. Lewis, She says this, after all, it is those who have a deep and real inner life who are best able to deal with the irritating details of our outer life, whether that's diapers or detention or denial or desertion. Whatever life in Babylon brings, it's those with a deep sense of an inner life that can deal with the irritating details of the outer life. Vertical home, 
begins to manifest horizontally. The last tension is one of this, present and longing, present and longing. And we see it here. He says, stand firm in this true grace. Everybody say stand firm. You know this is one of the most important commands in the New Testament, along with do not be afraid. Stand firm might be the like, most, two most uh, prevalent commands in the New Testament. Stand firm. Ephesians 6, and talking about spiritual warfare, I think says it three times in one passage. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. What's obedience look like as a follower of Jesus? Stand firm in the true grace. So we see loyalty and subversion, this tension. We see peace and chaos. We see set apart and sin. But we also see this present and longing. Stand firm. Stand firm, which implies that there's something firm to stand on. And it's not the ways of Babylon. Don't be duped by the gods of the lands. There's something to stand firm on. Jesus says at the end of Matthew 7, there's something firm to stand on, the solid rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Either that's true or it ain't. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't be duped into thinking that other things are not sinking sand. And so with Christ as our foundation, with this true grace as our foundation, with solid rock to stand on, how do we be? How do we be? Well, we be present. Jeremiah 29, I think, is the best passage. It's instructions to people who are living in exile. How do you live in exile? This is a good passage to, to dig into because it says, this is to the people I've sent into exile. Where are they at? Babylon. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Does this sound vaguely familiar? Genesis chapter 1, 8. But seek the welfare, the shalom of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, in its shalom, you will find your shalom. What's he saying? Be present. Like there's gonna be a lot of your life that looks just like everybody else's and that's okay. Plant a garden, eat the produce. I brought in two baskets full of eggplant and squash and zucchini yesterday. We're gonna cut it up and eat it. It's gonna be good. I'm gonna give some to my neighbors. Like plant a garden. He says it. I'm just trying to obey scripture, right? Actually, I'm trying to feed kids healthy food. I got a bunch of kids. I'm trying to feed them something healthy because they might as well eat Cheez-Its and like goldfish for lunch if we let them. (laughs) Yeah, ice cream too. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Plant a garden. Build a house. Live in it. That's present. That's being present. What the scriptures instruct us and what Peter's been telling us all along though is saying don't put all your hope in those things. Babylon tries to do everything it can to secure that for me and my own. And there's a time back when all of us had all that and we, if we can just get back to that time and it wasn't as disruptive as it is now, man, we'll be right. Peter said don't put all your hope in that stuff. Do it. Enjoy it, do it well, be the best at it. Start companies, hire people, and don't treat them like cogs in your Babylonian dreams. Serve them, empower them. Give them the business and start another one if you can. I, I don't know, I'm just trying to like apply this somehow to 2019 America. Be present but don't put all your hope and stock in it. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand because there's days when those things that you are participating in fall apart. The things fall apart, the relationships break, the company crumbles, the hurricane hits the house. And the temptation is to slip into denial 
to despair or to just put up the dukes and start fighting everybody because you're angry at what just happened. And I get it, man. That's like fleshly, like that's it. I mean, I get it. You get it. Like you're like, man, I've done all of those. So have I. And what Peter's trying to tell us, what the Holy Spirit wants to awaken in us is that there's something deeper in us that's bringing that out. People, slip, people get into addictions because of this thing that's inside of us, this eternity inside of us that we're trying to fulfill and satisfy, and yet we can't seem to do it. We don't have a word in our language for it. The Germans call it Zinzucht. They actually have a, a word for what I'm talking about in this language, and Zinzucht is this. I'm going to go back to this because I thought I had a slide up there that said Zinzucht because it's German language is crazy, by the way. It's this concept that things in your life are incomplete. They're not fully realized. And yet, at the very same time, simultaneously, they've left you longing, but you're longing for the ideal of the thing. You're longing for something greater and ideal. Lewis, C.S. Lewis captures it right here in this long quote from Weight of Glory. And we'll, we'll, we'll land the plane here. In speaking of this desire, this zinzut, for our own far-off country that we find in ourselves, even now I feel a certain shyness. Even now I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing indecency trying to name it. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of us. It's a secret that hurts so much that we can take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia or romanticism or remembering our adolescence. It's a secret that pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent and we grow awkward and we try to laugh at ourselves. It's a secret we cannot hide. It's a secret we cannot tell that we desire to do both. We can't tell about it because it's a desire for something that has actually never appeared in our experience. We can't hide it, though, because our life experiences are constantly suggesting this longing and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of the name. Some call it beauty or our experience of beauty and act as if that settled the matter, but this is a cheat. If we could go back to those moments in the past, we would find not the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. It's saying the thing didn't give you what you're looking for. It just awakened. It was a window into the thing you really want. And what we remembered experiencing would turn out itself to be only a remembering. This guy thought, right? He thought about some stuff. <laughs> Look what he says. He says, the books are the music in which we thought our experience of beauty was located. These will betray us if we trust it to them. The beauty was never in them. Rather, it came through them. And what came through them was the longing these things like beauty, nostalgia, the memory of our past are only images of what we really desire, but if we mistake them for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. They're not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not yet found. The echo of a tune we have not yet heard and news from a country we have not yet visited. Zinzukt. We're present in this world, but we're longing for another. And that's the tension of a soul of an exile. Um, when my father died two years ago, uh, <sighs> uh, toughest time of my life. And um, for like six months, we waffled back, I waffled back and forth on should we move back? Should we go back home and try to, you know, I think in my mind, step into some of the things he had done and started. And by God's grace, we hit pause on decision making because, you know, like right after your father dies, it's probably not the best idea to make major decisions in life. And so we hit pause. And um, I was just reading through the story again. You know, reading through the story again, I happened to be in Exodus. And the, and the Israelites were longing to go back to Egypt. Man, we had garlics and leeks. They had squash and zucchini. They planted gardens, you know. Actually, they didn't. 
and they had forgotten that. Somebody else had planned them, they were being made to work them. But they started getting caught up, a longing to go back to what felt familiar because whatever it felt like right now, it, it had disrupted them. They were disoriented. And I remember being out in the garden one day and the Lord spoke so clearly. It wasn't audible, as Adrian Rogers says, it was louder than that. And he said, Josh, I'm, I'm not calling you to nostalgia. Like, you don't really want to go back to Buford. You want to go back to a time where your dad was alive? <laughs> where you didn't have all this responsibility before things started breaking in your life? Like, what you're longing for is that. But that didn't exist. You just didn't have the knowledge of all of that at the end. No, what you're longing for isn't in the past. What you're longing for is in the future. I don't call my people to nostalgia. I call them to remembrance. Remember me and my faithfulness to you all along the way so that when you look into the future and see that big question mark and it feels real scary, like remember my faithfulness. I will keep you. And matter of fact, I'm already there. Do you believe in my omniscience or not? God's much more gentle than me. And I just remember that bringing a peace in the midst of chaos. And the verse that really hit Jason and I to, to, to just confirm that we needed to stay here was Psalm 37, 3. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. The life of an exile is one of tension, of loyalty and subversion, of set apart and sent, of peace and chaos, of being present but longing for another home. And that's the life that Christ has secured for us, who came from a far off country into Babylon and took on the consequences of Babylon on himself, to win the hearts of God's children back to himself so that he can then unleash us to spread. It's better that I go away so that you can now take this experience of holistic love that you're experiencing from me into the world and begin to create little homes that one day when Christ returns will be a realization. Because when we flip to the end of the Bible, what do we see? We see another Adam and another Eve getting married and a new heavens and a new earth. And we see this long table of feasting and a better cup that this is symbolizing right here. And when we sit down at that table, there ain't no more Babylon, it's only Zion. Because we've been called to a kingdom that can never be shaken. All the Babylons can be shaken, Zion cannot. That's the kingdom. If you are in Christ, you've been called into and you represent. Live as an exile because the end of all things is near. Let's pray.